So one of the things we do a lot at these retreats, as you know, are interviews. And we sit with various groups of you and sit with you singly. And often, of course, what we hear are the stories of your suffering. And I certainly know my teachers heard the stories of my suffering. Once in a while we get your joys too, but lots of times, particularly at this point in the retreat, there's a lot of suffering that's happening both here at the retreat and the suffering that you brought with you from your lives in the world. And so we hear about the ways in which we're all caught and the cycles of suffering that go around and round for many of us. And um, we hear sometimes of the kinds of grief and loss that create a lens through which we see the rest of our lives. He hasn't said it yet at this retreat, but John often says at some point in one of his talks, he has a line that I like, he says, may your past not hold you in captivity. Some of you probably recognize that line. May your past not hold you in captivity. Some time ago, I was due to go to a meeting. I go to a lot of meetings, actually. And meetings are definitely big-time suffering. <laughs> and this particular, this particular meeting, there were a group of people who were pretty angry at me. And um, I knew that it was not going to be fun. And I was actually quite worried. I was talking with my good friend Ajahn Amaral about it ahead of time. He often gives me some advice about this and that. And so we, you know, did all the things that one does before such a thing. And, and then as we were closing the conversation, I said, well, do you have any last words of advice? And he paused and he thought for a minute and he said, yes. He said, don't suffer. <laughs> so I hung up the phone. I said, thank you very much. And hung up the phone. <laughs> And I thought, well, that's all very well for him to say. You know, how come he's not going to be at the meeting? He's way up there at the monastery. I have to go to the meeting, and I was the one that felt like I was going to have to suffer. So how was I going to do that? And what's also true is that many of us, many of us in our families grew up, and many of us had stories that were attached to us, right? And maybe you were the responsible one. Or maybe you were the good one, or maybe you were the bad one, or the mischievous one, or the lazy one, or the bright one, or the And for most of us, I think there was also that wonderful story that someday out there, if we only tried hard enough, we could be perfect. We would really get it right. I just, um, two weeks ago almost two weeks ago, went <clears throat> to my 50th high school reunion, which was quite an occasion. And um, I was, of course, quite anxious because with a very few exceptions, I had seen none of these people in the entire 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it was very interesting. You know those movies where people morph? so you know I remembered bright 17 year old no gray hairs no wrinkles 
athletic or not faces. And then, of course, there were all the 67- and 68-year-old faces. Pretty interesting. And what was especially interesting to see was the way in which people's stories, the stories that I had about certain people, were no longer true, you know? There were some of the ones who were not so smart, who had gone on to have fabulously successful careers, did well in college, had advanced degrees, have done wonderful things. And of course there were others, you remember the ones in the yearbook who were destined for great things, who actually hadn't done as much with their lives. It was kind of interesting to see and to watch regroupings begin to happen. So tonight, I really want to look at several different kinds of stories and stories of suffering and the ends of suffering. So here are some of the beginnings of the stories. We're going to follow them through in the talk. One is about a person I know who, as a child, um, was hospitalized for a whole series of surgeries. And, you know, this was quite a while ago. This person is uh, more or less my age. And um, in that situation was not really very well protected by her parents and kind of discounted as being damaged by her mother. And there were doctors who were not so helpful and not so tuned into children and hospitals that definitely were not child-friendly in those days. So that's one story. The other personal story is my own, and it starts about, <coughs> mm, I think, 12 years ago now, when my husband and I were sitting in my therapist in our therapist's office, and the therapist said to Russell, you know, you should probably tell her what you've been thinking about. And Russell said, he kind of gulped and got a little scared, and he said, well... <clears throat> I want to go to Burning Man. <laughs> and I said, what's Burning Man? <laughs> and then in another story, a more Buddhist story, is there's four different stories. There was a young man whose name was Ahimsa, and Ahimsa was a very bright young man. And... Um, he was so bright that his fellow students were jealous of him, and so they started a rumor, and they started the rumor that Ahimsa was sleeping with their teacher's wife. They were in a spiritual school. And when the teacher first heard this rumor, he said, no, no, not Ahimsa. He's such a good student, and he's so brilliant, and he's so kind and good. He would never do such a thing. But the rumor kept going, you know, and ate at the teacher the way those things do. And after a while, it began to get to him, and he began to see things that maybe weren't there. And he finally was completely consumed with jealousy and anger, and he plotted as to what to do to Ahimsa. And so he called him in to his office, the way teachers do sometimes, and he said, I have a new practice for you. I want you to go out and kill a thousand people. And Ahimsa said, no, it's not something you do in spiritual life. But the teacher was kind of, you know, had gone over to the dark side, I suppose is one way to say it. And um, so he kept telling Ahimsa that that's what he had to do. 
And then in the last story, the last story is about a man whose name was the Emperor Wu, who lived in China about a thousand years ago. And he was a great warrior, as the story starts, and also a spiritual seeker, but he couldn't seem to find a way to really get into practice, and he kept trying. So those are our four people. So the Buddha often teaches on the nature of suffering, on its origin, on its development. And he wanted all beings to learn how to live with serenity and equanimity and to be happy, just like we just did in the metta practice where we were wishing happiness to all beings. And in his most basic teachings, he really outlines his thinking about suffering and the ending of suffering and how it comes to be. He teaches that there is great suffering. There's enormous suffering. There's the kind of suffering that's pain, like physical pain in the body and that kind of thing. And he, But there's also the place where he was pointing toward where nothing is inherently, permanently satisfactory. There's always something a little out of round is one of the images that comes. And he said also that one of the most difficult places around suffering and around our being in the world is that there's always that place in the mind that wants things a little bit different. Have you noticed? Is it ever okay here at Vajrapani? Here we are in this marvelous place, but there's always the mind going, this morning, you know, it wasn't quite warm enough. And by this afternoon, it was a little bit too warm. And maybe your clothing was not quite right, or whatever, or your back or your knees. There's always something that isn't quite... We could only be just a little more enlightened. So there's that kind of attachment or addiction that really causes the most difficult kind of suffering. And he teaches that it's possible not to get caught. It is possible not to get caught by this and to find a way to live our lives so that we don't suffer. And then he goes on in the teaching about the Eightfold Path, which we'll talk about more at the end of the retreat, about how we can live in such a way that we can have a wise understanding and attitude, we can live our life carefully and ethically, we can train the mind and the heart, and in doing so we can learn to live without suffering. And he also taught that at any given moment we are living out the consequences of previous actions, of our own previous actions and those of other beings, our family, our friends, the nations that we live in, our cultures. So this is the teaching about karma. Heather talked a little bit about it last night and talked about how the word karma means action and and its consequences. So it's like this, you know. And there's an action, and there's a reverberation. And the reverberation, of course, goes on sometimes for a very long, long time. And it's often been spoken of in our world, and particularly the New Agey world, very simplistic, very simplistically. But it's not a simplistic teaching. And it's really fascinating just to even let your mind think about it for a moment, about the web of actions and their consequences. It can be huge. Think of all the 
actions and consequences that brought all of us here to this place tonight. You know, there's you and your life and your relationship to Spirit Rock and your teachers and your mom and your dad and Vajrapani and the people who founded it and the people who built the road and the people who cut the trees and Lama Yeshe and the Dalai Lama and pretty soon, you know, the web just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more complex. And the Buddha did say, if you try to do this, it gets too complex. The mind can't hold it. It's, it's unthinkable to try to imagine the karma of any particular moment. So, in our being in the world, in a moment that arises, there is a moment of perception, right? Something happens and you perceive it. Seems pretty simple. And the Buddha taught that that moment is colored by past experiences. And our, our perception is influenced by these past experiences. The memory of them, their influence, what happened to us in, in that moment. And sometimes, of course, this is useful, you know. The truck is coming toward you. You remember that trucks are big and heavy. Get out of the way. That's a useful way in which your perception has been influenced by the past. But sometimes, of course, it's not so useful. And it means that we're not seeing freshly or clearly in any given circumstance. And then um, often we react in a way that's not necessarily so appropriate. And sometimes that's what really begins to continue a cycle of suffering. So here's an easy way to begin to see that. Everybody, you can think of your primary relationship in life. And if you're not in an intimate relationship right now, you might think of when you have been in one. And you can remember back days, weeks, months, years, when your best beloved was late for dinner. So there you are, or late for something else. You can tweak this to suit your own story. And maybe, let's just say that day you were already a bit grumpy anyway. And so it's 6 o'clock and they're not there, and it's 6.15 and they're not there, and it's 6.30 and then it's 7.30, and, you know, the mind and the heart begin to do what they do. And then they walk in the door. Finally, you know, you hear the car pull up and the door slams and the front door opens and your best beloved walks in. Most of us do not see clearly in those moments, right? And this, in the teaching of the Buddha, is a form of ignorance because our perception of our best beloved as he or she walks in the door is colored by all of that thinking, all of that imagining, all of the grumpiness of the rest of the day. And we can't see clearly in that moment. Our, our mind and our seeing and our perception is colored by um, the, the past, colored by the story. And so our consciousness in that moment has a particular flavor. 
in this case, likely to be a little defensive maybe, or angry, or terrified. Um, but the thing is, we don't catch that. We don't see it. And we think, I used to think anyway, that I was seeing clearly, you know. Here was this person that I'd been waiting for, and I knew I had the accurate picture. Joseph Goldstein once said at a retreat I was sitting, he said, notice how we build houses of thought, houses of thought, and then we inhabit them. We live in this, these houses that we build of our thoughts. And so we live in the houses of our various stories, and we look out through the windows of those houses. So there is a teaching that the Buddha gives. It's called the Cycle of Dependent Origination. And in this teaching, the Buddha describes how we create this endless cycle of suffering, how we create houses in the mind, and, and we don't see clearly. And you can understand this teaching to be a teaching about many, many lifetimes, how you cycle through lifetime after lifetime of, ex of existence. But it's actually also a really sophisticated psychological teaching about the cycles of our suffering in this life. You don't have to understand there to be many lifetimes in order for it to be useful. So we come to a particular moment. We come to a particular moment. And this moment is, as all moments are, conditioned by our previous moments. And our mind is conditioned by our previous experiences. And our perceptions are conditioned by our consciousness. And so something happens. The door opens. And we connect with what's happening and we recognize an event and there's a whole series of, of activities that, that go with perception. We, we recognize it, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. We make contact of some sort. And this all happens very, very, very fast. And frequently, as we're looking through this lens of our story, there's a reaction. I like it. I really like it. Or I don't like it. Or no. Or yes. Or I want it. Or get rid of it. So your best beloved coming home late, right? The door opens. And what happens? Do you react from your story? I certainly did many, many times. You know, where have you been? Because the story is, of course... They're squashed on the freeway, or they're out drinking in a bar, or they're not bothering to call because your, their work is more important than you are, or whatever it is that you have in your mind about your best beloved who isn't there. And it's not very often that we're able to just drop that whole story, drop the whole novel or soap opera that the mind wrote, and just notice, oh, there they are standing in the doorway without any story at all. It's hard, isn't it? It's really interesting to begin to see that. So remember that story about how you could get to be perfect, the one that I mentioned early? 
You know, each one of us was going to somehow develop a way of being perfect. I won't read you the whole poem. Maybe I'll do that tomorrow. But here's just a few lines from Dana Falls, and I particularly like these first two. She says, Perfection, the idea of perfection, is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. So, you know, that story of perfection often is exactly what leads to an enormous amount of suffering for many, many of us. This place that happens, this place of an event happening and our perceiving it, is in mindfulness teachings. It's the second of the foundations of mindfulness. It's the place that's called Vedana. And it's where we notice that our experience is either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. It sounds so simple. It sounds like, why is that a whole foundation of mindfulness? Excuse me, you know. But it's exactly the place that if we don't notice it, we cycle around again. And it's exactly the place that if we do notice it, the Buddha said, we can cut into the cycle. We can begin to change things. So when we get caught in a story, when we don't, you know, it's there's your best beloved standing in the door, it's unpleasant, you're already mad, and you say some unskillful things, and maybe he or she just turns around and walks back out the door again, right? And then there's a whole cycle of suffering that gets going from that. So we all know this place where we can be really unskillful. We see what we see through the lens, but we're seeing through the lens. We're not seeing clearly. And so hurt and pain, enormous suffering can arise. And it's the worst sort of suffering. It's that place of getting caught and wanting things to be different but not being able to see the way out. So there's a couple of things that are really important as we think about this. You can't change what brings you to a particular moment. When that moment arises, it's already there. The sound happens out in the driveway, the sensation arises in your body, the person next to you makes a particular noise, whatever it is. And Everything that brought you to this moment has brought you to this particular moment. You don't get to back up and say, no, thank you, I don't want this moment. (laughs) We'd like to, but you can't do that. And so, you know, whatever has happened in our past, whether it's, you know, difficult relationships or abuse or, or, you know, parents who weren't the parents that you would have liked to have had, that's already happened. You, You don't get to change it. And whatever we were told about ourselves and whatever we believed about ourselves, that's in there. It's solid at this point. We are the inheritors of our karma, like the, the chant said last night. You know, That's what we've got is our actions and the actions of our others. And you will experience a sensation as pleasant 
or unpleasant or neutral. The person who looks just like your ex, whom you do not have good feelings about, is going to bring up unpleasant feelings, almost certainly. That's just how it is. And the problem is when you don't recognize it, right? If you don't recognize this unpleasant feeling, this unpleasant sensation that arises when the person looks just like someone. We don't recognize the the wanting. We don't recognize the yumminess, you know. All of a sudden somebody comes in who looks really yummy and all of that desire comes up and we don't see that. We don't remember that the lens of the old story is there. It's, it's quite like, I wear contact lenses a lot of the time, and it would be like if I forgot that I had them in, you know, and I thought that was how it was. And so you could imagine if those lenses were colored and I was seeing everything through rose-colored lenses, you know, um, and I forgot that that was true. So in the stories we began with, my friend, who had all the series of hospitalizations, grew up and had more difficulties with the medical world and some experiences that were really hard. And um, certainly the experiences she had as a child with many, many surgeries were very, very difficult. And so as that story grew and as she inhabited it, felt really small and extraordinarily vulnerable and often terrified and couldn't really defend herself. And her mother told her she was defective and and she also felt a lot of shame. And so later on, as she grew into an adult woman, had very big difficulty in terms of connecting with the medical community, was really afraid of anyone who was in it. And with my husband, who was preparing to go off to Burning Man. You know, I didn't know anything about Burning Man. I did a little research, big festival, every Labor Day in the desert, lots of drugs, alcohol, (laughs) sex, rock and roll, people running around without much on, painted interesting colors, tents where you could go and have sex with anybody you wanted to. I was really scared. I had such, I knew there was going to be this gorgeous blue babe who (laughs) was going to take him away from me. And he was undoubtedly going to come home, as some of you know, one year I was sure he was going to come home with purple hair. (laughs) And that's all I knew was my story. And Angulimala, who was Ahimsa when he started. He was Angulimala later. So young Ahimsa, who believed his teacher, went out and began to murder people because that's what he was told to do. So he believed the story. And, you know, it got easier as time went on, one after another. And it's said that he got up to 999 and then one day, he was a, the serial killer of his day, <laughs> and one day, walking in the forest, he saw a monk in the distance, walking along with his bowl, and you know who that was, right? Uh, it was the Buddha, and uh, Ahimsa, who by then was known as Angulimala because he had a necklace, a mala, of angulis, which were the fingers of his victims, it said, and he needed his thousand 
victims. So he was actually, the story goes that he was headed to um, kill his mother. And he decided that it would be much better to get this monk rather than mom. So he started chasing after the Buddha, you know, and called out, stop, old man, stop. And our friend, the Chinese emperor, Emperor Wu, you know, it's not good being an emperor because you're caught in everybody's story, right? Everybody has a story about the emperor. I mean, we think, look at what's happening with Obama. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, if you're an emperor, particularly in 12th century China, who's trying to find a spiritual path, you've got a lot of power. And do people really give you the straight story about spiritual practice? No, you know, they're trying to be nice to him because he's the emperor. So they give him some easy things like diet and, um, you know, a little exercise. And maybe you could build a few monasteries, your, your highness. And, and one day he looked up in his court and there was this red-haired, tall, blue-eyed, gigantic man. So who was this, you know? So, we here, you know, we are. I was scared. My friend couldn't deal with medical treatment. You know, Angulimala is killing one person after another. The poor old emperor, whoa, can't figure out how to do spiritual practice. We're caught in our stories, and it goes around and around and around. So the teaching is... As events happen to you, notice that they are pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. On the cushion, if you don't notice, you know that little thought that goes through that's kind of yummy? Maybe an image of a beach with a palm tree. And you don't go, oh, pleasant. The next thing you know, you're buying tickets to Costa Rica and planning your vacation with your best beloved. And are you sitting here on the cushion in Vajrapani? No, you're gone. Or, or maybe it's unpleasant, you know, that really bad pain in your shoulder happens one more time and you don't notice that it's unpleasant and pretty soon you've left the retreat and you're off doing Sufi dancing instead of Vipassana because why not, it'd be much more fun. And so, or if it's neutral, sometimes we just get bored and then we space out and we go away. So noticing these things helps us to stay here. We come back to that first teaching of Gills. Here, here is one of those things. And it's really important to see it just as it is. Because that's where we can make a different choice about it. We can respond to what is, not to our story. Pema Chidran talks about how she makes a practice when people come toward her of just noticing her reaction or response. You know, oh, I like this person. Yes, I want, you know, I really want to get to know him. Or, oh, you know, take this one away. I don't really want to talk to this person at all. And to begin to see how that comes up so quickly and to not react out of that, but to step back and try to meet this person without knowing who they are. So, you know, my friend who began to understand that there was a story that she was inhabiting about the medical world, um, did a lot, a lot of work around it, lots of therapy, lots of 
insight, lots of exploration of her own stuff, and gradually began to protect herself and to to experiment with finding people that she could trust. And there was a great moment when she had an arrogant dentist, I hope none of you are arrogant dentists, who, you know, really tried to tell her what, what was so, and she fired him and went and found someone who was kinder and more compassionate and who would work. And she said, you know, she said to me, I feel so much, I feel more beautiful and I feel taller and, and I have more energy. And she'd found this place of freedom in stepping outside of that story. And of course, Russell did go off to Burning Man. He's about to go now to his 11th Burning Man. (laughs) He did come home once with magenta hair, not with purple. And over the years, what I discovered was that he softened and became more expansive, and there were some really nice things that happened for him, and um, he didn't get into any trouble that I've learned about anyway. And, um, and so I could let go of that story about how this was a really bad place where difficult things were going to happen and really see the reality of this person whom I love and whom I'm really committed to. And Angulimala said, Stop, old man, stop. And the Buddha turned and looked at him and said, I've stopped a long time ago. When are you going to stop? And in that moment, the story fell away. And Angulimala, it is said, became a monk and then became fully enlightened. And every now and then the villagers didn't treat him so nicely because they remembered the days when he was not doing good things. And the Buddha just reminded him that he had to bear the the karma of those past actions. But he stopped that story that had been given to him. And the Emperor Wu saw this big tall guy and and, um, he thought, boy, I'm going to ask him some questions. I've never seen anybody like this before. And he said, so I've built all these monasteries. He said, what about the merit from all these monasteries? And the giant kind of looked at him, giant at least by Chinese terms, and he said, no merit. Well, you don't say that to an emperor, right? And so he immediately realized that maybe he could learn something from this man. And he said, well, what about, you know, all these volumes of holy teachings? And Bodhidharma, because it was Bodhidharma, the great Zen sage, said, nothing special, vast emptiness. And that really knocked the Emperor Wu for a loop. And, um, and so he looked at him again. He said, who are you to Bodhidharma? And Bodhidharma said, haven't a clue. I don't know. And at that point, the Emperor was just utterly dazed and when he looked up again Bodhidharma was gone and he never saw him again. So, you know, these stories really can change when we really get step out of them and my friend has been able to live, you know, her life with a little bit more ease and not being so caught in her fear and able to take better care of her body. It hasn't been a particularly easy body. And you know, as as I have 
repeatedly had to let go of my stories about Burning Man because it happens over and over. Almost every year I get a little story going about this year, it's going to be the bad one, you know. And every year I, I see this man come back and things deepen and grow and it's been actually a great benefit to both of us. And as I said, Angulimala stopped and became an arahant and Actually, one of the nice bits of his story is it was said that he was very helpful for women in childbirth. <laughs> I don't understand it, but, um, you know. And we don't need to stay caught in these cycles. We don't. It's not always easy to get out. Sometimes it's an enormous piece of work. But we can learn to be just in the present moment. And then each careful, skillful decision based on recognizing what is true in this moment, not the truth of our story, leads then to the next moment in which we can see more clearly. So we can't, you know, it's so tempting to go into the moment with a story about how it is. And I loved that quote and repeated often that Heather brought last night from Rilke about the questions, and I wanted to read it to you again because there's a a last line that we found out she didn't even know existed that I think is really important. So Rilke says, I want to beg you as much as I can to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves. Try to love the not knowing itself like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. So you could really work with this in your practice in these coming days to notice the Vedana, notice the feeling tone, that's what we call it in English, of any particular moment. You could even just for a moment right now, is this pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? You know, what what is happening for each one of you? There isn't a right answer because it's going to be different for each one of you. And you know, the Emperor Wu, I love that story of the Emperor Wu, because his question to Bodhidharma stripped away one of the most basic stories that we carry (coughs) around. Who are you standing there? You know, and it's said that he was able to live more, more happily. He stepped out of being an emperor every now and then. He would quit. And he would go off and sign on with some monastery and he would clean toilets and sweep the paths. And then every now and then the people from his court would go and pay the monastery a lot of money and bring him back. It was probably a good fundraising thing for the monasteries. So then he'd have to step back into his emperor karma again for a while. But he was at least able to step out of it and to find a way to develop his practice. Each one of us has a story of who. If I said to any one of you, who are you? 
you would tell me probably be a name and an address and a life and we'd have quite a considerable story and the not not the least bit of it is that we are a solid separate shell so you can also play with this one who are you standing there and you can try on just for fun I don't know I haven't a clue and not know just for just play with it just not know for a little bit who this morning Quilly and I looked at a YouTube video of the deep space image from the Hubble um, telescope those galaxies from 13 billion years ago it's not who am I it's even what am I (laughs) what am I being here in this moment what are we all to let go even now and then of the story of self and see what happens you'll come back to it you'll know who you are where to go when Sunday rolls around trust me but it's very interesting to begin to look at this other way of holding it because when we can be fully present when we can really look as best we can with as little story as possible that's a place where we have the most freedom that's a place where we are free from our story free as free as we can get from our conditioning the Buddha in the end was free of all stories and I realized today I was thinking about a particular passage I thought I would end with it it's something that the Buddha said in his enlightenment experience and he realized that he was not caught in the house anymore he said seeking but not finding the house builder I traveled through the round of countless births oh painful birth is ever and again house builder you have now been seen you shall not build the house again your rafters have been broken down your ridge pole is shattered. My mind has attained the peace of nirvana and reached the end of every kind of craving. So may we all step out of our houses and see more clearly. So let's just breathe for a moment. So thank you very much for listening and please enjoy your walking. <coughs> thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.